So, so I'm the academic director of the uh, the fund. So, welcome everyone. And uh, that's it. That's my one line. Howard. <laughs> Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Stuart Ngatich, a QML student, postgrad, taking MSc in investment, and I will be giving a presentation as the founder of Wasabiti. Thank you. Hi, I'm Tilan, and I'm the bachelor student studying business and management. Um, I'm also one of the student investors in the Queen Mary Social Venture Fund, and I'm going to be the host for the panel today. Hi, everyone. My name is Nerwit. Um, likewise to Tillan, I'm also a bachelor student at Queen Mary studying maths uh, as well, and I'm also currently a student investor within the fund. And I'll also be hosting certain parts of the event throughout um, today. But yeah, welcome. Um, okay. Hi, everyone. I'm Oliver Farrell. I am a graduate of Queen Mary back going back a few years now in 2016 um, but also focused on uh, climate change and finance at, at Imperial College as a postgrad. I currently work with a family office focused on impact investing um, and um, yeah great to meet everybody today. Okay so I'll go next. Uh, I'm Georgie. I work as a senior researcher at the Center for Social Investment in Heidelberg. We focus on uh, social innovation, social entrepreneurship and newly on impact investing. I'm also a visiting professor at Politecnico di Milano, uh, right now virtually, uh, mainly due to the current situation, and I look forward to the discussion. Hi, I'm Dawn Ostwick. Uh, I'm the chair of the Sketch Advisory Board, um, newly arrived, which is great. Thank you very much. Um, looking forward to today immensely. Um, I used to run um, the Esme Fairburn Foundation, who were one of the pioneers of social investment uh, in the UK. Seems like a long time ago now, so this is, this is going to be quite an interesting conversation for me. Um, and uh, more recently, I've been running the National Lottery Community Fund, and I now have a kind of portfolio life, and I'm semi-retired, so nice to see you all. Hey everybody, my name is Matej, uh, so great to see everyone. Um, I'm an international business student at Rawlings College uh, in the United States and I have my own podcast called Talking Impact Investing, but I also um, am working on a research in regards to talking or in regards to imp impact investing and it's just a topic of, of my interest and um, where I want, want to work in my career. I think I'm last and good evening everybody. It's great to see you and thank you so much for giving up your time to, to come to the event. My name is Patrick McGurk, so I'm the director of the Social Impact Unit, which is part of the Sketch project that uh, Joanne and Fazan and, and Dawn and uh, a number of the students here are also um, involved with. Um, so our event was a couple of weeks ago, focusing particularly on social impact measurement, but I'm very interested in tonight's session on impact investing, which is more of the fund um the funds concern very much in the funds concern but it, we're, we're interested in all these all these issues so uh, thanks again so hello everyone a very warm welcome to the event uh, my name is Devin, as you already know and i'd like to thank everyone for attending this event which is the last one out of the four-part series that we're hosting with the in the social venture forum um, so this event has been made in collaboration with sketch as well as the queen mary social venture fund now to sort of highlight a bit more about the Queen Mary Social Venture Fund in case you haven't heard of it before, we're currently compromised of 13 student investors and we're essentially the first cohort in the first year of running. Um, and we're also the first student-led you know, social impact fund within the UK, investing in specifically student-led enterprises within the UK. Um, and you know, the fund is supported by Queen Mary University of London, but more so especially the School of Business Management as well. So I'm joined today by Zipping, uh, Tillon from the Social Venture Fund teams, as well as Toa and Natalie from the Social Impact Unit from Sketch at Queen Mary. 
And for the event, you know, we're specifically holding these to sort of, I guess, foster more so discussion around social entrepreneurship, impact investing, and more so just, you know, sharing general knowledge that we develop. Um, and more so, this event is specifically focused on impact investing. Now, this topic is fairly interesting because, you know, usually there doesn't seem to be a concrete explanation, right, for what impact investing actually is or what it exactly entails. It's sort of like a process or thing in development right now. So it's fairly interesting. Um, and of course, I think everyone has introduced each other in terms of panels. Um, so we'll kind of move on. More so on the structure currently. Um, so firstly, uh, interesting presentation led by Toet, who sort of talked through, I guess, his experiences and journey with sort of founding a company and, you know, what it does in terms of helping patients. So it's called Tabiti um, Healthcare, and it supports access to safe and quality medicine. Um, now, so next, after that, we'll have a panel discussion and the follow-up Q&A section from there on, and then, you know, a final wrap-up. Now, before everything gets started, um, you know, I'd like to introduce Dr. You know, Joanne Zhang, who's obviously the director, as you all know, for like a quick word before we begin. Yes. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Namir. Thank you so much. And I'll keep it really short. I just want to take this opportunity to thank you and congratulate all our student investors and ambassadors uh, created this fantastic four-part social venture forum. Um, over the past weeks, eight weeks, and alongside their busy studies during the second term. And the majority of them are final year students or postgraduate students. So um, they have been working so hard and it's driven by their interest, I should say. So they put uh, such exciting panel tonight again for this event. So thank you so much. And, uh, and thanks for the panelists joining us. And a special mention because it's the last series of um, this forum tonight. I want to say thank you for Zen, the mastermind. <laughs> Hi everyone. <laughs> thank you, Joanne. I appreciate that. Um, definitely not the mastermind. I'm just here to coordinate uh, all the good work of the students. Well done, everybody. Well done, everyone. So without further delay, so let's learn more about impact investing tonight. Back to you, Namir. Um, so now a quick note regarding our fund before I pass over to Tobert's presentation is just that we are currently open for our second round of funding. Um, so currently £15,000 of equity investments are up for grab and I'll be posting the link below. So, you know, anyone you know that could sort of, you know, potentially make use of this opportunity. Uh, we'd greatly appreciate it if you could, I guess, spread the word or maybe if you want to apply yourself, then feel free and we'll look forward to your application as well. Now, I'll be passing over to Toet, who'll be talking you guys through, you know, his short and exciting presentation regarding his journey um, and, and, you know, what he's learned so far. Um, and over to you, Toet. Welcome to all our attendees and all our panelists to this particular talk. And I was looking more in terms of just talking about my journey as a founder and as an entrepreneur in Africa. And as you've all heard, my name is Toet Ngatich. I'm a founder of Uthabiti. Um, a startup in Nairobi, Kenya, that seeks to increase access to safe healthcare products. And we do this by enabling communities to verify drugs straight from their mobile phones. So mobile phones is quite, has a high prevalence rate within the Kenyan market. And we try to use that to protect communities. So let's give this girl a name, let's say Judy. So Judy just found out that she, she is pregnant, an unplanned pregnancy, which happens to many young girls. And let's assume she's an undergraduate. 
And in our local context, this means many things, which includes um, hard dropping out of school, the dangers that come with delivering at such a young age and weak, inefficient healthcare systems. But like any other young girl, she took the right precautions that science has dictated, which is, um, which is you could use healthcare products to stop yourself from being in this particular position in the very first place. But like many other girls, she fell victim to a counterfeit drug. So this is in 2019, and the very the right person to the very right side is our cabinet secretary for industrialization at that time, and they just nabbed 20,000 counterfeit uh, contraceptives at the Kenyan port. Um, you can imagine the rampant cause or spread of counterfeit medicines within the Kenyan pharmaceutical supply chain. Um, the Ministry of Health says up to 23% of healthcare products within the Kenyan pharmaceutical market are fake, uh, substandard, or unsafe. Uh, WHO equally goes ahead and shares that up to 100,000 lives are lost annually in Africa because of fake healthcare products. And that's where we come in. Having found out a problem, we try to make sense out of it and find a solution. There's so much background as to how we started till where we are, but to this very moment, our simple verification process is, if we're able to have a database of all the healthcare products, store them in a safe database and empower the end consumer to verify that drug, then we, have, we will have achieved track and trace of drugs within the supply chain. And by any chance, we'll have cut off um, all the intermediaries or points of entrance of fake healthcare products. And that's exactly what we do at Utabiti. We, 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 we test the quality of medicines. Um, we label these medicines after we test the medicines and store those data within a safe um, cloud server. And again, there's a lot of technology behind it where we, we interlink um, data and blockchain and ensuring that that data is not compromised in any way. After labeling those medicines, we're able to supply these medicines um, to our supply chain facilities, which are our grassroots pharmacies. So the sense is the more network we have in terms of pharmacies at the grassroots level, the better. The higher quality testing facilities we have at the very beginning of the supply chain, the better. And equally, how we're able to connect the supply chain is how we're going to fight this problem. But our journey again has been, it's, it's long and, and, and I keep on insisting and sharing how much building a community around what you do and the problem you're doing so that people, the more you talk about your impact, the more people are able to relate to what exactly you're trying to solve. And it's something that we started at, at the very beginning. We talked about the problem of counterfeits, uh, the impact you're trying to create and how we're going to achieve. And all along, all this, all this using here and many more have supported um, our journey this far. And just because I'm in the UK for this particular year, and the last time I was here was because I was meeting the Queen, um, you can imagine how you're able to connect uh, the impact we were talking about and what we were doing to then receiving this particular award from the Queen. But I like to visualize this more in terms of we, there's a problem we are solving, and there's an institution, either a philanthropy, either a funder, or a higher institution that is trying to achieve a certain impact at the grassroots level. And there are goals that need to be met. Where these two organizations meet, that's where the magic happens. And that's where, as young organizations, we're able to grow and to scale. 
But what's most important in our journey has been how do we get back to the communities, talk to them, especially at the end of the, the, at the at the consumer base, at the very at the very grassroots, talking to them about counterfeits, them understanding that it's a problem, and how our solution can be made or can be refined more for them to use it, and we're able to safe proof the safe, the the supply chain, and at the very very end. We always try and answer this question if we did right by Judy that if today, if she had the solution to the solution we are offering, will we have made her stay back in school? Will, will she had had a better life? And these are the questions we keep on asking ourselves and we hope to achieve more and more by building more partnerships, uh, more, 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 more friends along the way. And that's the end goal. And what I've tried to explain in this particular talk is simple. Um, it's our intuition behind impact investing from a level of grants and prize money, a very primary, very primary stage in terms of fundraising and looking for funds as young and young organizations with impact in mind and, and all that in mind. I understand that there are other levels of impact investing, which involves other capital structures, for example, uh, equity, debt, and all that. But this and what has worked to us to this very stage is the simple aspects of sharing your story, understanding that you can do it and having the right team to execute it and bring those partners on board. And so far, that's our impact and we hope to achieve more. Thank you. Thank you, Tavet, for your presentation. You've made some really interesting points, but of course I have to ask some questions. Um, first of all, how did you even decide on taking health as an area you want to impact? Uh, I, I keep on sharing this in many platforms and I hope uh, many people will, will relate to it. It's because uh, in my early stages of undergraduate, those rampant cases of abortions back in my undergrad, and you'd ask the question why, why this was happening. And, and we, did, we did a research. It wasn't intense, as you'd say. I mean, we were undergraduate students with limited resources and all that. But deep down, it narrowed down to aspects of counterfeit, uh, counterfeit contraceptives. And the whole narration of the BT started as a company that's trying to solve an issue of counterfeits within the sexual and reproductive healthcare system. Over time, this problem has grown to other aspects of healthcare. And we now understand antibiotics, we now understand different aspects of healthcare. So we started with a problem we were facing as students, trying to solve that in the most simplest way and i remember then we just had a batch scanner and that was all we had we i mean blockchain was not there at that time so it's a problem we have in mind we try to solve it using the technology we have and we try to scale that as fast as possible and as more technology comes along we add on to what we are trying to solve so the goal never changes we are fighting counterfeit medicines and that's it amazing and how have you managed to raise impact funds for the project itself? So I mentioned this um, during during the presentation itself, which is, um, so as a startup, uh, first of all, you try and remain sustainable as much as possible. So you are, uh, there are very ways, many ways to, to raise funding, which is in finance, it's equities or equity or debt. And as a startup, sometimes we, we try and limit this by fast growing your leverage within the company that is growing its value so that if at any point you're trying to input debt or equity as a funding mechanism, then you have a leverage to, 
you know, say this is how much I am worth. So for us, we majored on grants and prize monies. And just to break it down, so grants is basically institutions that feel like they, they need to impact a specific space and you are in that space. So both of you meet at the midpoint and you implement a specific project. Prize money is more or less pitching or, or, or bootstrapping in that particular manner where you come together as startups with the most innovative idea, you talk it out and the best uh, organization wins uh, the prize money. Those two have always been, I'd say till now, the very best channel of fundraising away from bootstrapping that is raising funds from your friends, your family and all that. Okay, last question. Um, what has been your lesson so far in running an impact-driven organization? What have you taken out of it? Um, I think if you were to ask me, an impact-driven organization is, uh, it means many things. Uh, but foremost is you need to have a goal in mind and, and the passion that when you wake up, that's what you want to do. And that's what you want to achieve because it's the only way you're able to to make steps gradually. And not just that, you need to understand the system and the place you're in. So people talk much about sustainable development goals and why I keep on mentioning this is because, so we have nations, sovereigns, all of them signed to the UN charter and the UN has 17 goals. And by 2030, the global, uh, the, whole, the whole world will rank itself based on these goals. So if you're able to identify that this is the goal I want to work towards and look at the indicators behind it and create, contribute to that particular indicator, then in the long run, you're able to create change that you want to see in the society. And when you position yourself in that particular uh, stage, you make yourself very much um, investable, if I'd say, for lack of a better word. Because what happens is, again, there's somebody here who's trying to reach out to grassroots organizations and you are here and you've positioned yourself in the right way. When you meet in the middle, that's where the magic happens. Thank you so much for the presentation. Thank you, Tilan. Um, and Tawad has also made a really, a really interesting point about sustainable development goals. And I'm welcoming on stage all of the panelists. Um, and we're gonna start our panel and just to take it on, uh, take it on from Tawet about uh, socially de social development goals. So in 2006, uh, principles of responsible investment were established with the main purpose to tackle sustainable development goals, which were outlaid by um, United Nations. There are 17 of them. And throughout the years, the principles of responsible investment, which are an institutional initiative and the world's leading proponent of responsible investment, have amassed more than 3,000 signatories, which have combined more than one tri 100 trillion assets under management. And in the recent years, we can see a huge trend where more and more institutional investors and big corporations are undergoing ESG-related calibrations and raising more and more funds that are, um, that are being invested in sustainably uh, sustainable businesses. For example, BlackRock has raised more than 600 million for a 
for a fund that's focused on ESG. Others have followed TPG, Bank Capital, um, KKR have all raised uh, impact funds. So the first question to you, Matei, and then everybody else can add their points is, um, are we in the midst of a paradigm shift in terms of investment? Hey, everybody. Um, thank you for asking this question. Very, very good question at this point of time, Tilan. Um, I would say that in a way, we definitely are in the midst of, of a change. And because of, of the recognition that companies, but also investors uh, have noted that we can do good while also uh, make money. Uh, and combining those two things are definitely something that more and more companies started to realize um, of how important it is. Uh, but at the same time, uh, that presents us with, with, with different challenges from greenwashing that we mentioned before, or was it in the quiz? Um, but ultimately, uh, it's the right step in the right direction, um, combining both changing the world and society and, and making profits. Um, okay. Also, a question uh, for Georgie. Um, what is even impact investing? Because there has been there has been numerous different uh, names such as responsible investing, ESG investing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Is everything the same, or is it that impact investing is something different? No, actually, thanks very much, Tilan, uh, for the question. Um, that's actually something that comes up over and over, and people are really fiercely discussing at the moment. And rightly so, I think, because it's not all the same thing. Uh, I would define ESG investing as um, mainly doing no harm. It's not really focused on, uh, you know, focusing on impact, creating impact, advancing the social goals that uh, Tawit was mentioning. And uh, it's, it's not a surprise. And at the same time, it's a bit sad that Tawit was saying that he was uh, relying a lot on prize money, a lot of, on grants, which are super important. But you would think someone who sort of wins an award uh, by the Queen is sort of internationally recognized, you know, should be a very interesting uh, investment case. Um, but I think, and I would be interested in hearing uh, more about your experiences, but I think we still don't have uh, a fully fledged market that is really focusing on impact. And even what goes under the label of impact investing, there are two different sorts in, in, in that very category. Um, there's the, the uh, European Venture Philanthropy Association, EBPA, that distinguishes between investing with impact and in investing for impact. And only the investing for impact is really focusing on social and environmental value creation first uh, and is not looking so much uh, into you know, how much financial return this is actually um, producing. Obviously, uh, most of the investors don't just want to give their money away, but some are happy with, you know, just getting it repaid without an interest or even having an interest that is substantially below market rate. And then there's the second chunk uh, of investments that are prioritizing financial performance first, but still have this very strong drive in terms of uh, increasing impact. And I think it's very important to distinguish these things. And also for market shapers, um, those are the investors in the field, but also those regulating those to be clearer about you know, where we want to move with this. And if we're really serious about sustainable development and the sustainable development goals, there needs to be more for impact and less with impact or even doing no harm. Thank you. Um, Oliver, can you please explain to the audience how is impact investing even connected to ESG and corporate social responsibility? Sure, sure, of course. And, and going back to kind of the difference between impact and ESG, 
I think a lot of literature recently has talked about, you know, the difference between these two sections. So in terms of an ESG rated company or something like that, it just doesn't often deliver the transformational change um, as the main purpose of that investment. So um, this whole idea that impact does not equal ESG is important. And that's not a bad thing, but it's just to understand that if something's highly rated as an ESG bond or a company, it doesn't necessarily mean it's that impactful. So um, impact investment has explicit environmental and social performance objectives, which is important, um, but it's not typically geared towards changing what pre-existing companies produce as goods and services. I think that's quite important to understand. And um, many kind of reviews of impact investing have focused on, you know, measuring that impact to quantifying that impact and how we do that. And maybe we might, might talk about that a little bit later. But in terms of um, looking at investment specifically, um, measuring impact is the key thing. And I think that's still something that a lot of companies and fund managers struggle to measure in the right way. And it can be quite subjective um, overall. Um, but uh, in terms of ESG and governance data and things like that, I mean, we're definitely seeing a move more towards looking at how the impact of that could be linked, but they're still distinct entities together. Yeah, we're going to touch, touch upon both the financial performance and how to measure it further down the line. But a question to Don, what are actually the principal reasons for adoption and integration of ESG factors? So I think I'll build on what others have said. Um, I, I think we, we, we're at an interesting moment in uh, a lot of companies asking themselves what their role is in, in broader society. Um, when I started my professional life, I spent quite a lot of time working in the city in the 80s and 90s. And that was really the, the, um, the era of um, greed is good. Uh, and um, a, 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 a film character called Gordon Gecko, who some of you may, may or may not have heard of. I don't. I don't know whether he's sort of still a, a, a sort of um, a stereotyped figure. Um, so I, th I think that um, as um, the role of corp corporations has actually become more and more um, instrumental in our daily lives and more 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 often operating on a kind of global scale in in a way that in a sense almost challenges the role of government and national government um i uh, and as we have seen um that we live in a highly interdependent world um as sort of citizen as global citizens um but also as kind of cross-border uh i think that um corporations and investors increasingly have to ask the question about what, what is the role of the private in um, sector, uh, whether that's through investment or being an operating company, in creating um, societal good. And I think that the ESG approach is an approach that, that can be adopted um, wholesale across uh, all um, investments in pri and private sector. So in that sense, it's a great baseline. I mean, I would, I would agree with some of the things that, that Oliver and Gorgie have said uh, about the differentiation between different types and, and uh, different types of investment and different approaches to doing good and impact. Um, and probably if you go right to the other end, I, I would put at the, um, which is probably where Tawit wants to end up, but I don't know, I'd be really interested in his uh, well, I'd be really to know what his future, what his 
desired future business model is in terms of revenue. But but ultimately, kind of right at the opposite end from everyone can do ESG is what you might call kind of social investment, where really you're probably putting um, social purpose ahead of financial return. Uh, and there, the financial return, if you like, is the bonus and the social purpose is the deal breaker. Uh, now, that is often where philanthropic investors will play because they are inherently entirely social purpose entities in the first place. And I guess that's where Oliver's family office is in, in, in possibly, don't know. Um, so, and that's where a sort of foundation investor is, is likely to be. So I, I, I entirely agree that you have this kind of massive continuum of people trying to do different things. Um, I, I actually... Um, quite like the ESG approach because it is universal and it places all um, investment and all activity within one framework that says you, you you are not simply operating in isolation you belong and I and are a key part of the world around you so for me that that's quite attractive as a kind of universal mechanism and then you can get into these much more differentiated st different strategies if you like depending on what your aim is what your history is uh, what your strategy is etc um I'm going to give words to George as well because he had some interesting um, thoughts in the comments, but just to return on your uh, Gordon Gekko part. So would you say then then the financial crisis in 2008 uh, was one of the catalysators for this move to the ESG? Uh, I, I'm not sure, actually. Um, I, I, I'm not sure how much... Um... I, I, I think it may have been a factor. Um, I think the whole approach towards building profit with purpose has been around for a very long time. Um, there's a very fine tradition in the UK of social enterprises and social entrepreneurship. Uh, I think you see that um, globally uh, or, or, uh, as well. Um, I think the credit crisis... Um, it, perhaps, perhaps it was uh, perhaps the consequence. Actually, here we are. What thirteen years later, is, is is all of us starting to ask some questions about how do all the different bits of society fit together? Um, what is the responsibility of a corporation? What is the responsibility of a citizen? What is the responsibility of a government? And what is the responsibility of um, a not-for-profit? Uh, and and how do we navigate those different roles? And how do they collectively be more than the sum of the parts? Um, I, I'm not completely convinced that the, the credit crisis um, um, led the corporate world to a moment of mea culpa um, and let's all be better citizens. Uh, I'm a bit more cynical ab about 2008 than that, um, particularly as I was running an extremely large endowment at that time that um, had got to, I think, 960 million, 968 million we'd got to um, in terms of our asset values. Um, and we were just touching a billion. Um, and of course, we lost about 200 million in that process. Um, we didn't lose more than that because we moved a lot of it into cash in advance because um, we were concerned about what was going to happen. But um, I, I, I think the learning has been slow um, with regard to the credit crisis, if I can put it that way. But I'd be really interested in what others think because this is not my expert area. Georgie? Sure. Yeah, I would like to react to what Dawn has just been saying. I think it actually wasn't a triggering factor in the sense of, as you were saying, mea culpa, and now we're doing it another way really feeling sorry for all the things that have gone wrong. 
But what we see in, uh, in social science research more generally is that these disruptions, as we see in the COVID crisis right now as well, that these disruptions uh, enable things that have been regarded as niche types of uh, activities, uh, things that have been going on at the fringes that they really get into the mainstream, right? So Don has mentioned the social enterprises and the social entrepreneurs that have been doing and promoting this work for a long time. You can track this also in, uh, in sustainability and environmental practices where you have these renewable energy cooperatives that have been working like we have started, uh, we have some that started in Germany, like in the, in the late 1980s, 1990s, and they are then sort of pioneering those approaches. They're being laughed at for a long time, uh, sometimes being seen as, you know, the, the esoteric hippies that don't really know how to do business. But when these disruptions come in, and I think uh, the, the credit crisis was one of these instances, there's more attention to those and an opportunity for those to actually get to the surface and actually get to the mainstream. So I think these things, several factors coming together are enabling these kinds of things. Uh, my question always is, you know, how do we govern those? How do we moderate those? How do we accelerate those uh, without uh, waiting for the next crisis for things like this to happen? So we've heard about green bonds. I've talked about private equity funds going into ESG. Oliver, can you explain to us the different types of investor types or uh, investment opportunities that one can undertake when it comes to talking about impact investing? Sure, yeah. Now, I'm going to explain it more specifically from a kind of um, a private investor family office point of view. And it will come into primarily kind of measuring impact within that specifically but in relation to the different opportunities within investors as such so looking what we're doing at the moment within a portfolio we're looking at whether it's kind of certain bonds or if it's private debt or if it's looking at private equity investments and also going into some common stock options what those different investment types mean for impact because some of them you can look at impact in different ways and I think for me specifically at the moment, we're finding, for example, if 70% of the portfolio is in bonds, that provides a return that's satisfied for the family in question specifically. But measuring impact within those bonds is quite hard because it's not like if you own a bond in, in, in a bank or you own a bond in a pharmaceutical company, you know that they're going to have a sustainability department that focus on different areas. And if, you're, if your target area of impact is mental health, for example, you have to hold a bond in a certain company to have that, you know that there's going to be an impact there, but it's not going to be as substantial as compared to investing in specifically a product project in the community that's focused on that. So for me specifically, I'm finding it quite interesting how we're looking at impact within those different investment types um, within the fund. And I think specifically how one measures the impact is, is quite interesting. And you can look at some of the um, impact goals. So whether, um, as um, uh, Georgie was saying earlier, you know, is it kind of avoiding harm specifically? Are you moving on to benefiting stakeholders? And the things I'm talking about now, a lot of people will be nodding when they're thinking of the impact management project, what that means, and or is it contributing to solutions? So for, for example, a lot of obvious bond investments in the portfolio would clearly be avoiding harm if at some degree they are making sure that they're ESG compliant and they have that department. But contributing to solutions may look quite different. So it could be that, for example, something like private equity fund investing in renewable energy would clearly be contributing to a, the climate solutions there and it would be better for that, that part. So there's obviously the kind of the impact avoiding harm, benefiting stakeholders, but there's also the investor's contribution as well. So are we just signaling that, signaling that impact matters? Are we actually doing more than that, engaging actively at a level? 
or are we trying to engage actively but also grow new markets? So there's kind of two different um, variables here. And I think um, getting that balance right is quite hard and measuring that is, is something that um, is still debatable to this day. So moving on, on how to measure the impact, Tawat, how, how are you measuring the impact um, at your company? Um, so uh, I mentioned about measuring impact. So there's no, there's no standard um, procedure, I'd say. In fact, the other day I was, uh, I was with, with the Fazan, the other day we were going through some social value calculators, which more or less calculates impact. But as, as startups, I feel it's an area that we haven't quite tapped into. So we get into partnerships, implement projects. Um, and then after that, there's no clear guidelines on how you're able to monitor that or how to report against that. But how we do it basically is the objectives that we set before and vis-a-vis -vis how we've met those objectives. For example, for organization, um, it's based on the number of drugs we dispense, the number of verifications we run. So those are two key metrics that we we measure us, ourselves against. So for example, if we if we get into a new area or a new new setup, um, and we target, for example, let's say 5,000 verifications within one month, and by verifications, I mean people verifying 5,000 drugs. If we're able to match that, we're able to know, okay, this is the impact we have created. And if we are not able to match that, then we're able now to account on how to get to that particular stage. But as of now, there's no there's no blueprint in terms of from a perspective uh, of, of a startup and as an entrepreneur at the grassroots level, there's no blueprint that this is the actual way to follow. So you you end up having each organization has its own unique way of measuring their own impact and saying this is our story and this is the impact you have created. And for us, it's the number of verification of drugs and the number of drugs dispensed. Um, thank you. And what about what about the financial returns that these different ESG products, impact investing products actually have? A question to all, but I'm going to start with Matei. So do you think that there is some sort of a correlation between investing in ESG and achieving higher financial performance or is this just um, marketing from different organizations to, to promote their uh, products? Thank you. That's a, that's a very good question, Tillon. Um, I would say that there is a correlation. Uh, several studies were done. Even Morgan Stanley uh, looked at the data from, I believe, 2014 and 2019 of how ESG-rated companies outperformed the S&P 500 uh, in the United States. Uh, the research that I'm working on uh, also looks at that. Um, based on the, year, on the given year, um, we and my professor looked at uh, either 28 or 38 countries um, and the companies uh, from ranging from 5,000 to 8,000 within a certain year. And the majority of them outperformed the main indexes in their selected countries, uh, which gives us a, a solid outlook that companies that are at least ESG rated, that show some incentive to, to, to disclose the data, to, to work on that. And even those that are already very good established um, outperform the main indexes. Uh, obviously, this is uh, more talking about the uh, public, publicly traded companies. Um, but at the same time, it, it gives us a sense that ESG can lead to, to, to better profits. Um, and I'm sure some, some of the other uh, panel speakers would love to, to talk about that and possibly even talk about the private investments as well.
Yeah, if I may come in, come in there um, uh, briefly, but yeah, in terms of looking at kind of compliant companies ranking high with ESG criteria, I mean, the, the more kind of, you know, highly ranked a company is in terms of adhering to ESG, the way I see it, and I think a lot of people would, would agree that they're included in more investment funds. And I think, you know, this creates this kind of positive feedback loop where ESG standards are weaved into the corporation and staff are looked after in the, in, in the right way. The environmental carbon aspects are considered and in the plan for long-term growth. And essentially you have this, that these values reflect the employee behavior and then consumer interest and that all improves performance. So then that also re results in more inclusion in other investment funds and then means more investments. So you've got this kind of positive loop that goes um, on and on and that really um, allows um, a, a company to, to, to perform better and um, successfully outperform those that don't take into account ESG. So I think um, definitely um, that also kind of adds to those those rankings there and specifically allows um, a cycle that complements ESG and allows companies to perform better. Any other thoughts about financial performance? Yeah, I would actually like to jump on what Oliver has just been saying. I just came across a post on LinkedIn by a colleague from uh, ETH Zurich who was um, speaking about how a recent study that was reviewing the data from 2016 to 2020 uh, was assessing the performance and they came to the conclusion that about 60% of the studies um, found a positive correlation between ESG criteria and financial performance. But at the same time, he was raising this issue, although I totally agree that uh, all of the points that Oliver was making about, you know, uh, customers are starting to appreciate it more and it creates this feedback loop. He was also, um, you know, raising this issue about maybe it's also still a question of uh, a bit of cherry picking going on in the ESG uh, area where you have investments that are very, um, that really have a win-win situation where these two things go, go in line. Um, but when the market grows and if you, if you just see it mature, then there will be more that actually don't have this win-win and have a trade-off. And that might actually, um, you know, base down um, the, this financial performance that we see um, as of now. And it still is, a relatively small market as compared to the, the rest of what is going on um, and uh, market consolidation and these kinds of things could actually lead to, to a dip in, in what we see in terms of financial performance. But as of now, it seems to uh, certainly pay to go for these transformations, especially as Oliver was also mentioning, if you apply this long-term perspective, right? When you think about what's going to happen in the world, how is policy going to be shaped, how are customers going to react to what I'm doing. Um, and and from, from that perspective, it's certainly a strategic, uh, a good strategic choice to move into that direction and also to invest in that market. Can I come in and, and build on that a little bit? So uh, I think uh, I completely agree about um, companies with a, a sort of ESG perspective um, outperforming. Uh, and I think I think that is to do with a lot of the factors that, that that you guys have already um, stated. Where I think things become more complex is when one is not starting at the financial return, but the social return and looking at single issue um, or, or actually even complex issue, social problems. And there, I think I have to say that I do not think there is such thing, any, any such thing as a free lunch. And I think very often there, um, if one wants to solve complex social problems, let's say people with long-term issues around homelessness, um, 
uh, applying market rate returns is highly likely to do nothing other than um, operationalize service delivery um, and leave those people um, untransformed. Uh, and therefore, I, I think there's a sort of complexity that there's a risk if you always start from, from a perspective that actually the, that um, impact investing can transform the world and maximize financial return. Uh, and there is a free lunch. I, I think we're kidding ourselves. And that quite often impact investing, when it does um, venture into some of the more complex issues that we face in society, as opposed to the slightly easier ones where you've got a kind of quite low hanging fruit in terms of return. I think quite often you then end up with a, a much more complex position where um, what is actually happening is grant funding is ultimately being used to subsidize financial returns um, for investors. Uh, and I think that takes us into quite a complex ethical issue about is that so, so for me in that context, I'm always interested in, in um, follow the money. So if, 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 you've, if you've got a financial structuring that, that involves, I don't know, 30% is grant, 30% is debt, and 40% is some sort of um, equity, uh, I'm always interested in um, is 30% debt, who, who's making the loan and who's making money off that, and 40% equity, where, where is the return going from that equity? Is it a philanthropic foundation investment, in which case actually you're retaining the the return the financial return the gain the growth within a philanthropic social purpose or actually is it a commercial investment house of some description and the money is actually seeping out in which case I think the thirty percent grant funder has to be asking what is happening to my money here and why am I putting this subsidy in here and is it and it may be absolutely fine because if you think about lots of charitable organizations they might take mainstream loans off commercial banks of course they always have done um, we live in a mixed economy but I think we have to be quite careful about assuming that philanthropic funding i.e grant funding can be used ultimately to subsidize market rate returns um, when dealing with social issues I absolutely love that that critical turn. May I just add briefly to that? Yeah, of course. I think there are there are actually two two main problems here. First thing is what are the ESG criteria, and we obviously still have problems with those. It's just again uh, social media coming across a tweet by a colleague of mine who was complaining about uh, Philip Morris doing very well in terms of ESG criteria, a very sustainable company from well from from the outlook but uh, or from from the outside um, but if you if you look at sort of the business model of the organization you might question you know what does that tell us about whether this company is actually uh, you know creating sustainable value and if those criteria are sort of incomplete or uh, have problems then obviously this correlation between ESG and and uh, financial performance uh, gets uh, well difficult um, the second point is, and, and I totally love that, um, as, as Don was saying, I think that the, the market at the moment is really focusing on, on this type of cherry picking and on these, as I was saying, win-win situations or where you can really um, have a good technical commercially viable solution uh, to problems. A lot of that is happening in the environmental area, clean tech and these kinds of things, which is super important. But when it comes to solving social problems, as, as Don was mentioning, homelessness, social inequalities. Uh, I'm also thinking of, uh, about Tawit and this mission of, you know, educating people and getting to a mind shift, uh, enabling them to, you know, inform themselves, make informed decisions, protect themselves from those who, you know, uh, want to take uh, profit from them and, and just want to 
you know, basically uh, dump their future for that. I think there we, we shouldn't be fooling ourselves and thinking, uh, well, that's really possible in a profitable way. I think if it were possible in a profitable way, we'd uh, already have a, a couple of really major issues um, uh, addressed and, and challenged. And, and that really is the problem, right? I think there is an area where you have this win-win, where you can move into that direction, but we shouldn't be forgetting this holistic perspective of problems, but also, as Don was saying, of the the structuring of these funds and uh, a systems perspective in terms of the transformations that we want to have and the tools that we can apply to, to actually get that. So do you think then that the impact investing at this stage is the limit of capitalism so that the government should be the ones to get involved or who, who should do the cherry picking of the bad cherries? Then. Well, I guess, guess in a sense, it's, it's both, right? Um, so I'm always in favor of, uh, you know, fortifying the role of policy and of standards and of uh, standard setting and sometimes even obligations, right? So we, we have a huge history of, you know, people saying, uh, you know, we're going to care about gender equality and these kinds of things. But now in Germany, we just passed a law that is really forcing companies to work towards uh, gender, gender equity and these kinds of things. So I think there certainly is a role of regulators, but at the same time, we get back to this idea of, you know, you need the pioneers, you need to, to have those who are really setting an example. And I think there are inspirational uh, impact investors that really have this social mission or environmental mission first and, and actually make it work in these hybrid financing structures as well, as, as Don was mentioning, and as Tawat was also saying, right? R really using this prize money, using the grants, And that's not second best capital. That's often accelerating capital. And uh, hopefully I would actually want to see, uh, you know, closer partnerships between, uh, between institutions that can provide equity and, and debt, as, as Oliver was saying, and then combining that with grants in order to actually get to a solution that's viable and that really tackles the problem rather than, you know, just present a small business case. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting going back to kind of the, um, the, the, the governmental kind of aspect that Georgie was mentioning. I also want to talk a little bit about um, the, what Dawn was saying in relation to some of the debt. But in terms of, I think about 10 years ago, the first social impact bond in the UK was um, introduced basically to stop criminal reoffending. And there was, a, there was a bond that was introduced to, to do with that. It was really the pioneer of kind of social impact bonds. I don't want to just talk about bonds because I know it, there, there are other options specifically. But in terms of... Um, you know looking at looking at those as as instruments we also have obviously the, the the emergence of blue bonds as well in asia which are other other options focused on more kind of ocean and environmental sustainability then and also moving on to things called eden bonds which have come up recently which related to investors keeping certain areas of land wild and i think it's, it's quite interesting to understand you know um using kind of debt options to essentially Um, cost measurable and verifiable company-wide goals, things like that. One of the issues that, that I found specifically when I was reading over a lot of this stuff over the last few months was in relation to um, certain bonds obviously provide um, uh, additional payments on maturity based on if, they, if they're meeting emissions goals and things like that. And the issue can, can be here that certain investors might be tempted to root for companies that would fail to do good because they will pay a penalty on the bond. So it gets to the point where some, some investors were saying, okay, well, the bond, there, there can be a penalty here because they're not going to meet that uh, carbon emissions goal. I think there also has to be, you know, we need to be careful to understand that certain kind of green bonds are not going to be taken advantage of and, you know, bet on as such because they're not going to meet those targets. And I think um, looking at kind of 
things such as the wildlife bonds that kind of solved that dilemma. So looking at um, offerings where you could essentially have uh, bonds that invest back into regenerative agriculture and things like that. But I think um, definitely you know, assumptions need to be applied to green bonds to make sure people aren't gaming the system as such related to that. Can I just um, pick, on, pick up on a little bit of history, Oliver? Um, so um, Esme Fairburn was one of the first investors in the Peterborough Bond, which is the first one you were yeah. uh, describing, and the National Lottery Community Fund was the guarantor um, to make the numbers work. And it, it was very much um, a pioneering piece of financing um, with with the gov with government. Um, and I think this is quite interesting because we, we started to head towards what's the role of government in all of this. Um, I, I think there is the, the, one's got to be a little bit careful, though, because actually um, the Peterborough um, bond um, was curtailed in terms of it, it's it, it never completed um, its operation. And government who were interested in bonds, but actually became more interested in um, financing mechanisms that were payment by results so the so uh, and less interested ultimately in in um in a sort of pure social impact bond model so that so that you ended up with organizations in effect um being um underwritten with in, with investment against the risk that they might or might not then hit their um payment by results target. So the only reason why I say that is um, that when one, when we get into the discussion about what, what's the role of government in, uh, in, in this market, one has to recognise that governments change their policies um, over periods of time that, and, may, and may have completely different um, policy priorities from the ones they started off with. And therefore, they, they, can, they, 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 they may not always be in it for the long term for all sorts of perfectly understandable reasons. Um, but that, that actually can, I think, make um, the development of this market more complex, actually. Uh, and it may, it may sometimes be that less intervention is better than more as a result. So I just had to fill in that little bit of history because it was, it was very good to be taken back to it. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, that, it's really good of Oliver to, to raise this and Dawn to have your reflections on it. And I think one of the, the problems there is actually... Uh, it, if, as you say, sort of you, you, you stray away from your original mission. I think one of the, the dramas or the sad stories about impact bonds is that they actually haven't harnessed what they could be good for, namely pushing innovation for social problem solving. What they are often used is, well, they, they have huge overheads. That's a problem um, because they are set up over and over again. So they are not very efficient. And then there's still this sort of um, risk adversity. And uh, as, as Don was saying, this focus on payment by results and, you know, how can I make things more efficient rather than more effective? How can I take risks? How can I push the field forward? And if you don't use the instrument that, that was designed for that purpose or you, you misuse it in a way, then this is basically a waste of time for everyone because you're not going to get to more effective solutions, more effective interventions, and also not to you know, reasonable funding models, because you can't be setting up those all the time, you should actually be harnessing what comes from those, and then maybe trying to, to shape a level playing field and, and actually give uh, the agency and the possibilities, the freedom to access in the field, uh, as Don was just su suggesting, rather than sort of uh, going back to your old habits of uh, potentially over-regulating or misinterpreting a, a very useful uh, tool. Um. I'd like to uh, add on something and probably I'd, I'd hear the views of the rest too. 
from where I stand, I try and look at corporates, entities um, running investments, and it, it more or less looks like they want to, it's about minimizing the risk. So you want to invest money and be assured of a return at the end of the day. And as you all know, there's no free lunch. But why, why are corporates or organizations really holding back from going the whole mile? So there are organizations at the very far end, um, the ones that are more or less trying to receive the money. So even away from structures as prize money and grant money, why can these organizations come and set up these structures, um, bring these organizations into more, more or less professional setup and channel that money through these structures, more or less investing in this organization, not just through the money, but actual practice of this is how to run a profitable organization. And at the end of the day, this is what we expect out of you in terms of impact and in terms of returns. That to me will make more sense. Um, and, and just to take away that, uh, when you think of organizations, whenever they, they, they recruit, for example, campus recruits, they take you through a training process so that you fit to the mindset and what they expect of you. Do we, are we supposed to expect a more or less graduate trainee program for startups or organizations where they're big organizations that are trying to look into these impact organizations, nurture them, invest their money, and then get the impact they're looking at? So uh, shall I dive in and start? I, I'm, I'm not sure I can answer your question, Tawit, but why don't I kick off and then someone else can, can come in? Um, I think um, I was on the um, founding board of Big Society Capital in the UK, which is the vehicle that um, distributes dormant assets in, into social investment. Um, and I think the thing that I found very interesting in, in the social investment market, particularly as it started to develop into um, a um, into working more closely with the investment community, is that the paradigm that is usually adopted um, is that of the investment world. Uh, and I think where, which, and you're kind of, I think what you're getting at, Tower is, is that actually, um, that, that adopting those business principles and ways of doing things is a good is a is, is a good thing. I think I would slightly change that and say yes, it is. But actually, this world only works if also the investment world moves to try to create to, to create a new paradigm with organisations and individuals who are socially driven. Because otherwise, you, you're contorting social purpose into a model that actually is quite rigid. The investment, well, the investment frame is quite, a, is, uh, 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 and culture um, is quite rigid in the way in which it operates uh, and, and the way in which it thinks. It's incredibly effective and really impressive and, and has some massive benefits to it. But uh, unless it can be malleable um, in the way in which it responds to how do you maximize social purpose, we minimize um, the potential for doing good. Um, so for me, the model has to bend a little bit. Yeah, I think the, the main point is that the process, how it, as you were just describing it, uh, I think needs to go more both ways, basically, in the sense of uh, big corporates who have a 
bigger willingness slowly, uh, but it is there uh, of uh, internal change as well, entrepreneurship, these kinds of things to actually bring these into this into their organizations and at the same time share some of their competencies, some of their business skills with uh, entrepreneurs more generally, but especially social entrepreneurs. Talking about this whole transformation of business towards purpose, towards more democratization, towards more gender equality, uh, towards more participation by the employees and so on. So I think social entrepreneurs just, uh, well, it's easily said, but I think they need to capitalize even more on you know, the, the, the value added and the benefits they can bring to these big corporates. And then it really needs to be a collaborative process, right? I think we need to move away from, and that's difficult because the incentives aren't there sufficiently, especially for the corporates. We need to get away from this, you know, the corporate knows everything and they are going to help you do this. Actually, I think the social entrepreneurs really uh, operating in an environment where you, you know, you need to have your business case in, in, in some way, at least you need to have your financing and you are working towards transformational change. Well, that's a huge and, and a much bigger, I think, effort than you know, running your organization commercially successfully. Uh, and I think you have a lot to bring to the table and it should be capitalized more towards these, these big organizations also to foster their internal change. And I think if this exchange goes both ways, then we really get to a capacity building that is worth the label. I'd like to weigh in here, um, but I think those are really good uh, points by Georgie. Um, I also see a big role of good, the government and uh, particularly in the U.S., the state. Uh, so to make a soccer reference as a big Arsenal fan, uh, you're not going to play soccer with a hand. You know, you're going to kick, kick the ball because those are the rules. And so if the governments make the rules, uh, that's how the companies should operate, obviously. Um, for example, in the city of Orlando, uh, which is one of the high, highest uh, growing cities, um, especially here in the central Florida area um, with two and a half million population, uh, the city committed to be a carbon-free city by 2050 and to have citywide um, sust um, sustainable energy operations by 2030. And all of the bigger companies are following their lead. For example, Disney, it's a um, publicly traded company in the entertainment industry. Their operations are already 50% uh, powered by solar energy because of the investment in solar panels. And so on, on top of that, uh, not to, to forget to mention that Joe Biden, uh, the current president, uh, rejoined the Paris Climate Accord. And so all of those things are just moving the ball in the right directions and give, give the lead um, an incentive for the companies to, to act in the, in the right way. Just chipping in briefly, Matej, I think that's a very strong point, especially about cities and municipalities. I think when we talk about the government, we always think about almost the supranational organizations or the national governments. And obviously, while they need to, to set the agenda, they need to drive this forward. But at the same time, there are some restrictions in terms of the flexibility they can have. But what we see also in research is that actually cities and, and municipalities are leading the way in you know, saying we don't care about what the government does. I mean, you saw that in the, in the US when Trump actually left the agreement, there were major cities or, and even basically regional states such as California who were saying, we don't give a fuck, right? We think this is very important. We're going to, to stay the course and we're going to lead by example and really shaping this environment and really saying, you know, we need to move into this, uh, this carbon-free uh, economy. And that's the goal that we're going to set. And if you want to remain aboard, you're going to go along or you need to move someplace else. I think that's a very important trigger there in order to actually get to this mind shift and actually get to some, some of these systemic changes that we've been talking about. So then let's just say that what about if companies, big corporations would actually make the changes on their own? 
would then that mean that the government itself would lose power? No, I, I mean, uh, if I may again, just briefly, um, no, I think obviously it's, it's very important to, to have these, uh, these company initiatives. Um, this, again, a bit of a sad story there is that uh, we still live in a system where this leadership is not really being rewarded. I'm just thinking of Emmanuel Faber and how he's been pushed out by investors from Danone, who was actually sort of leading this transformation as a big player in the industry saying, look, we want to become B corporations, we want to become certified. And we actually, so that was his strategic vision. We want to transform all of the subsidiaries. Uh, and I stress that again, all of the subsidiaries of Danone, not only the parent company or some, some of the units, we want to transform the whole corporation uh, um, operating globally into B corporations where benefit is central, right? But what happens is obviously if you, uh, if you don't have the rules, uh, if you don't have the support also from both sides, right? Uh, companies taking the lead, but then you, ha you have some regulation um, that is actually enabling that, you're going to be thrown out still. I mean, it's, it's, it's almost, of course, there are some discussions about other reasons and about an autocratic sort of uh, leadership style and so on, which might be true. But uh, I mean, the bottom line is basically you had these activist investors and they still today in 2021 have been succeeding in pushing out this visionary uh, leader and 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 corporate uh, sort of role model, uh, I would say. So I think it needs to it needs to go both ways. There's no, it's not the time for for any of the parties to just lean back and think uh, things are going to happen. It's really about taking the lead and then ideally having partners who are who are shaping the whole process uh, alongside you. To to everyone, but who should be then the the one to make the next step? The public, the government, companies themselves, employees because the change is coming, but maybe not quick enough. So who should be pressured or to what extent? Well, I'll, I'll step in now. So I, well, I think definitely companies have um, a, a very strong role to play in, in, in making steps to be um, compliant or to be sustainable as such. But I think there's a lot of issues when you're looking at, you know, the, I'll go back to ESG again specifically and how, what that means, because um, a lot of these kind of ESG ratings um, are aggregated for, for a company, which is which is fine. But when we look at kind of, we have, you know, different scores from Morningstar, Sustainalytics, we have MSCI, we have ISS, ESG, all of these different ratings. But I think a lot of the time, all of this re research has often mentioned that governance, for example, um, uh, things related to bribery, corruption, it could be how the business is run. Um, these have the highest correlation in credit spreads specifically. So what that basically means is, looking at social and environmental variables behind that, it's not almost you know, representative of how those are priced in specifically. So it's been shown that some have been overpriced, some have been underpriced when looking at that rating. So looking at kind of the risk below it, I think is what we need to do more of. I think um, rather than um, investors or impact investors taking you know, one score as such, I think there should definitely be another level of looking into that to what it really means. Um, and I think specifically that, that goes back to how companies dispose their information and how that um, links into that specifically. But I think companies have a role to play within this. Obviously, governments have, you know, by law, are meant to specifically have environmental legislation, company legislation that backs that. But I think it does come from companies specifically. And I think when companies change, customers change within that. I think my, my, my response would be just building on what Oliver has said is, is that actually you, you need to involve all three. Um, I, 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 I think I would, my, just in terms of the sort of role of government and policy, I think that um, 
my my focus there would be on their regulatory function, not on their subsidising function, because I think I don't think it's actually helpful to subsidise the market. I think that actually slows down its development and create development and creates dependency. So, so for me, uh, absolutely agree about companies leading and the role the role of the public agencies is, is actually to set um, a carrot and a, a regulatory framework that has both carrots and sticks in it to nudge and push and encourage folk in this direction. Uh, to that, for me, I think more or less the same. I, the role for the government in this particular case should be uh, to regulate because it needs all parties involved. In this case, the government comes in as a regulator. Uh, but for the corporates, the big question will be how, and it's a question you asked me, that how do we, how do we measure our impact? It's the same for corporates. How do they measure impact? Is it about returns or actual significant progress? towards specific goals and it's an answer I'd really appreciate. Maybe building on what Tawit was just just saying uh, and, and what others have said earlier, I think there's definitely a very important uh, aspect here in terms of standard setting and I, I find it quite fascinating that we seem to be uh, sort of forgetting about a certain, a certain trade or industry that is going to become I think even uh, more important in the future in terms of really looking at impact and making that a fundamental uh, part in, in all of the deals that are being made, which are basically lawyers and standard makers and, and those who are sort of governing um, what, what contracts are going to contain. Um, and there's a very interesting uh, network that's called ESELA, which is actually about um, people in law that are thinking about, you know, how could impact-based contracting, uh, both in commercial contracts, but also in, in, in public procurement and so on, actually look like and ho how do you hold uh, you know organizations accountable for for the claims that they are making uh, which sort of closes the loop to, to this discussion that we had at the beginning or at least the, the buzzwords that were mentioned such as greenwashing there's also something like impact washing around where you say look we, we have these transformations but you don't really uh, provide any proof for those uh, and i think there's there's a lot that needs to be done in terms of um actually implementing that uh, and and making that sort of bulletproof and, uh, and a core part in, in how deals are being made in order to um, get to this transformation. One point I wanted to, to add uh, in, in addition to what I was just saying is I think the role of, uh, of citizens as well. So we're always thinking about you know, the, the, the big three, so to say, so the nonprofit sector firms and, and government, but I think citizens are taking a much more active role. Think of uh, the Black Lives Matters uh, movement, think of um, the, the Fridays for Future and so on. And I think we, we're getting to actually uh, more citizen participation and clever um, ways of actually engaging those much more. I'm thinking about the EU versus virus and the beer versus virus in Germany, hackathons uh, and so on, where you really try to crowd sense and crowdsource uh, solutions from the population and through this engagement in the process. And I think actually get to a bigger transformation because you have multiple actors chipping in their resources, but also their advocacy in pushing those issues. And as Tawit, I, I totally hear you in the sense of, you know, if it always boils down to it's going to be the financial performance, I think we can only change that if, you know, everyone is really aware that we can't continue the way we have. And, and for that, I think we need to get into a new mode of mobilization. And, and by the way, I think in that process, there is even a more proactive role of the state uh, whichever level that might be, whether it's regional or even municipal, in, in actually creating these social innovation processes, getting to the solutions um, and, and especially getting them 
to a level where they become mainstream rather than uh, remain in those niches that I that I mentioned earlier. But now I'm sort of swaying away a bit from from the standardization. But I think that's something that we haven't touched upon yet, and that which is essential in my view to actually get to these transformations. I would be interested in in hearing from Matei from from the U.S. perspective of you know the transformations that are going on and and where his hopes lie. Yes, of course. Um, um, I'm gonna say that. The way I view it is a relationship between the companies, between the governments and, and between the people, the communities. And it's the same as a romantic relationship. Uh, if j just one person is working and doing the work, the other, it's either going to be a bad relationship or it's going to end soon, you know. And all of the parts or, or all of the actors have to be involved uh, in order for us to progress, um, as we already have. But there, there are many more things um, to be done. Um, and again, governments on, or, or just like state um, can have a big impact on that with setting regulations. But again, companies themselves are the actors and I think they should um, consider the changes that they, that they can make. And also just, just another point here, it's not just saying, okay, I wanna um, solve the problem of, of the poverty around the world. And that's, that's a big claim and, and it's hard for one company to accomplish it. Um, and and I'll, I'd like to make a, here like a comparison with Tawid. Um, he's solving a very, very specific problem in, in one country um, and he's very dedicated and um, very inspiring story. Um, and, and it's an example that just focusing on something have, can go much longer way than just something in general, you know, our goal is to, um, the, make a product that's going to make people happy. That's great. But what's the real goal behind it? Just going behind the scenes and, and narrowing your options down can make a much lar larger impact um, from the perspective of a company. We are slowly running out of time. So um, before I ask the last question, um, if the if the viewers has have any questions, feel free to um, write them in the comments. Uh, but the question to all of you, the last question, we have maybe briefly touched upon it, but what's the future of impact investing? I'll give you one word, bright. That's Anyone a very good, a very good one. Uh, I think there's no denying that it's, that it's going to grow. Um, I think one of the, the key challenges is that, I mean, there's so much appeal, there's so much talk about it, there's so much I think more and more inspiring um, examples, but also evidence behind it. Um, I think people are starting to realize, as Tawit was saying, right? This uh, impact measurement journey is often a very tailored one, but we need to move towards, you know, aggregating insights there. We need to even uh, as funders also think about really having a budget for actually tracking the impact if we want to especially think about what Tawit is doing right, why he has this success and this is obviously not only relevant for, for him and his country and, and his context, but it's a relevant and very inspiring example that should be elsewhere as well. And if we want to understand what the success factors are, what kind of impacts he is creating with his organization, I think we should be interested in, in actually taking that and spreading it, transferring it. Um, and for that, uh, I guess we, 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 there's no de denying that the fascination is there. Um, and that it's going to evolve uh, as, as being something that's mainstream. I think the challenge is really to keep things uh, in check and also accelerate things in the sense of really moving into these hard to solve areas that Dawn was mentioning that we've been talking about. The tower, tower is actually tackling, right? 
um, where where you uh, where you don't have this easy solution and really trying to understand those and and make sure that the field moves more into that direction rather than everyone starting to say, you know, we're doing impacts uh, because as as uh, my colleague here at at uh, Polytechnico, not here uh, as I said, virtually at Polytechnico, Mario Calderini. Uh, loves to say, if everything's impact, nothing's impact. And I think we really need to make sure that we don't sway into this, yeah, well, we're doing all a little bit of impact. We don't need a little bit of impact. We really need effective social problem solving. And, and that's a huge challenge that, that I see in the field. I think, uh, yeah, going on from what Georgie was just saying there, in relation to kind of collaboration and things, I think also looking at the gaps um, when one is going towards e impact is important. One of the think, platforms that we use within um, the, the fund at the moment is the Tonic platform, which is a group of investors focused on impact investing. And what they've done is broken down these SDGs from one to 17 to ones underneath. So looking at, for example, if there's no poverty, it'd be looking at basic goods and services, one area of financial inclusion, or maybe if you're looking at health, it could be looking at mental health specifically or disease prevention. And what this really allows us to do is to put everything one area and understand what the general proportion of uh, impact investors are doing and what areas they're focusing on. So whether you want to join those areas or there's clearly a lack, for example, in products and services for women or a lack in upskilling, for example, and then we can generally see that there's a lack in that. And then there's another investor that also sees there's a lack and then they can work together. So I think collaboration and understanding where impact can be made is important too. And I think Going back to that Tonic platform is quite useful because there's a lot of things that are focused on specific SDGs that we can then see, okay, this is our investment policy that's focused on mental health, that we can then look at what best fits that. And I think um, that that will be something to look at. Looking over the next kind of 10 years to understand where those gaps will be is interesting. And I think sometimes uh, looking at things such as digital infrastructure um, and how that can change could be another area to look at. It could be easy to overlook a telecommunications companies, you know, there's virtually little impact there whatsoever. But when you think about, you know, what that might mean for wider projects, that's something to look at too. But I think collaboration is really important. And also not just addressing one SDG, you know, we're, we're doing that by this, really going into that and looking at, you know, how does that um, address that point? And I think there is definitely a position for less is more. I think that's, that's important and a more focused approach um, because inevitably if you're, you know, not in terms of kind of diversification of the portfolio, but if your portfolio is so spread out over every SDG, it can be a bit like looking at one of those annual reports where, oh yeah, we've chosen 12 out of 17 SDGs, but clearly they're not really focused on that much. They haven't got targets that are set or quantified to 2030, 2035. It's just, you know, we aim to be carbon neutral, for example, where that's not really enough. So I think, uh, yeah, focusing in and collaboration are key. I'm going to weigh in um, and, and talk about my perspective that I think the future, as Don said, is definitely bright. And the reason for that is if you look at the past, uh, let's say 10, 10 to 20 years, nobody was talking about impact investing. Nobody was talking about UN sustainable goals and just coming to, to a point in time where this is not the thing or, or, it's, or it's like showing up in social media and news, uh, but it's actually... Uh, the delivery is here too from the companies and I'm sure it's going to increase in the future and, and, and it's very exciting to, to uh, look at the progress and, and how the things are going to evolve in the future. Um, for me, again, uh, I think Oliver mentioned it, 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 I think it's going to be collaborative in many ways, uh, but it's also a point to think of and it's a question why I asked, is it impact first or, or the returns first? Is, Looking at the future and possibly, let's say, 2030, that's when we'll be reevaluating our 
our, our success against the goals. If we let, if we make impact about finance, which it's about finance, but if we majorly let it be about finance, then impact will follow the normal economic route, uh, economic blocks and impact by these particular years will be met within these regions. And if you look at uh, the statistics around it, in fact, in terms of indicators and how each, each economic block has met these particular indicators, you'd see more or less it follows the economic block. Um, if we're able to engineer this and put impact first in, 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 in my mindset and how I believe, then we're able to turn and make this a collective effort globally and make sure the underserved areas match up to more developed areas in terms of impact. So that's my view to, to, towards the future of impact. Thank you. Any last thoughts from the panelists? Can I just say thank you to my fellow panelists? panelists. I, I've been, I'm a bit um, out of practice on this subject area and I've learned loads. So thank you guys. It was really, really instructive. <laughs> yeah, I actually need to say I love the conversation and I thought Tawad had a really great closing statement putting impact first, um, which there's not much to sort of add on, uh, I think. Okay, then I think that we're going to wrap this up and thank you everyone for attending today to the panelists to the audience um, um, and I, I'd also like to thank my fellow team members that helped me in setting up this event and please do check out our social media we will share more insights and future events on there um, and yeah once again a quick reminder that we are once again open for our June 2021 round of funding. So do make sure to apply or share this news with anyone who you know may be benefit from this. So yeah, thank you and have a great evening.